A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust proof stainless steel hardware, weather ready teak, and quick dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, welcome to the Parasites podcast. This is an hour dedicated to the film created by South Korean director Bong Joon-ho that for many, many months has been infecting audiences more than any other. Since its debut at the Cannes Film Festival in 2019, the comedy thriller about a lower-class family slowly infiltrating an upper-class household through lies and deception has spread its way to box office success, BAFTA wins, and even a nomination for Best Picture at the Academy Awards. In this audio exploration of the film, we'll be getting expert insights on Bong Joon-ho's career up to this point. He does make films in the same way that Hitchcock did. We'll hear from the people behind the frenzied fan group on social media for Bong Joon-ho. The K-pop fandoms have jumped onto Parasite because there's some intersection between the two. We've also got an insider on Insiders to tell us about what makes the societal infiltration that's at the core of Parasite just so exciting. That is the skill that con artists have. They're just very smart at fooling you and they're incredibly sure of themselves. And we're lucky enough to bring you a conversation between director Bong and one of his great friends and collaborators, Tilda Swinton. And that's what he does and that's why he's so good for cinema. But first, let's head back to the start of Parasite's journey, a time when no one really knew what the film was or what it was going to become. The day of its premiere at Cannes Film Festival, I was standing in a designated lower priority queue with fellow journalists Ella Kemp, Karen Hahn and Ayana Murray. And it was the day not only a film sensation was born, but also a hashtag. I caught up with Ayana to discuss the social media sensation which has followed in the footsteps of the film sensation. We were at Cannes Film Festival and we were waiting to see Parasite and we were kind of just like idling our time. So we kind of decided, you know, let's start a group to get the hype up for Parasite. So it was me, you, uh, Ella Kemp and Karen Han. We kind of just sent out this hashtag and kind of sent it out relentlessly tweeting about it non-stop for about an hour before we saw the movie. The exact tweet was hashtag bonghive come through we out here for parasite. That was it. Everyone started picking it up and now it's this whole massive thing. But what actually is a bonghive? See I was like thinking about this I'm not sure like it hive makes me think about bees and it's like uniformity you know if I'm thinking about it on like a metaphorical level and I think the the love for Parasite is so universal and ubiquitous that 
everyone is kind of like it's this whole community kind of thing I don't know like we could pick like Bong Nation or something which is another kind of fandom name but it just ended up being Hive. Is there something in it about a Hive will operate around royalty and that perhaps yes. B- Bong is, is the, the queen at the centre of it? <laughs> Bong is the queen, not the king. What, what is it about him that evokes this almost boy band level of fandom? We see merchandise or like pillows and t-shirts and yeah. people making collages and using reaction images and pasting hearts over Bong Joon-ho's eyes and I think like Bong is just a very like lovable person I remember like there are so many quotes from him that are just instantly quotable like his acceptance speech to the Golden Globes about you know when you get over the one inch tall barrier of subtitles you'll be introduced to many more amazing films and him calling the Oscars like a local ceremony <laughs> he's just very funny he's very wholesome <laughs> At the time, we would screen a lot of American indie films and create subtitles ourselves. The, the movie I did the subtitle was the, the <laughs> Jungle Fever and Do the Right Thing. And so, Spike Lee 덕분에 그걸 많이 배웠어요. 그래가지고. So at the time, my English wasn't that good. So subtitling it was quite an experience. I had no idea there was such various curse words in the English language. Thanks to Spike Lee, I learned so many things. And it wasn't just the films of Spike Lee that director Bong used to cut his teeth. In film school, he got his hands on whatever he could. And it was when he needed help subtitling a student film that he met Tony Raines. So, uh, first, I met him when he was just graduating from film school in Seoul. So, uh, and in fact, I helped him to subtitle his graduation short. So that, that, that's how we became friends and know each other so well. He's uh, a very unusual career, and he was the outstanding student in his directing class at the film school, the Korean Film Academy. Uh, and he went on to several years uh, working as assistant and scriptwriter for various directors, uh, and he managed to assert himself around the year 2000, so almost exactly 20 years ago. He grew up in a context that was actually without precedent in Korea, because Korea was changing from a military dictatorship to a more or less liberal democracy. Uh, at around the time he graduated. It it happened in 1993. And so he grew up in a film industry that was suddenly entirely different from the one there had been before. Under the military governments in the 1970s, 1980s, film industry was extremely highly regulated and extremely uh, censored. I I was in Korea quite a lot at that time, and I remember that uh, the mood on the streets, especially around the, the time of the transition, was just dramatic. So Bong Joon-ho was was responding to all of that. He was uh, unsure of how he was going to fit into the new film industry. He signed up with a company. He slaved away on scripts and as an assistant director for this company for a few years. Uh, And then the same company gave him a chance to direct. They gave him a contract for two pictures. Uh, The first was called Barking Dogs Never Bite. And the second was called Memories of Murder. Bong Joon-ho has now made seven feature films. Prior to Parasite, working backwards, he made the full-bore Super Pig Ensemble Okja with Netflix, the until recently unreleased Snowpiercer, the family dramas with monstrous circumstances, Mother and the Host, and before those, 
he broke out with killer mystery Memories of Murder, a true crime story about the quote-unquote Korean Zodiac Killer. But before all those, is that film just mentioned by Tony? The Curious, never released in the UK, Barking Dogs Never Bite. On his very first film, Barking Dogs Never Bite, there was a calamity just before the start of shooting. He lost the intended lead actor. Uh, the guy who was supposed, was quite a big star in Korea at the time, was supposed to do it, suddenly got cold feet and ran away. Just literally disappeared, actually. He was just uncontactable. Nobody knew where he was. He just wasn't answering phone, wasn't answering emails, nothing. So uh, Bong had no choice but to recast it. And the person he got is you know, quite well known in Korea, but not a star of the magnitude of the guy who ran away. And... Uh, he had to rethink the character because of the change of casting. Uh, and the character became, in his version, uh, more like himself. I mean, it, it, he'd written it to be a character who reflected his own situation in a sort of metaphorical way. But uh, the character actually became more gentle, more... more. How can I say? Uh, more indolent, more frustrated... More like Bong Joon-ho. But it's also an incredible piece of cinema. It's so unexpected. When was the last time you went to the theater and you were surprised? Yeah, so maybe we are promoting our own movie too much, Tom. It's very embarrassing. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm promoting you. I, I'm a fan. So what actually makes a Bong Joon-ho film a Bong Joon-ho film? Bong Joon-ho made in, in 94, uh, as his graduation film at the Korean Film Academy, uh, a short film about half an hour long called Incoherence, which became very quickly the most famous short in, in Korean film history, at least in that school's history, for sure, because it got theatrical showings, it was shown in festivals in Korea, and, and it even got some kind of theatrical life. Uh, it's a very sardonic social portrait of... Uh, it's in three episodes with a little epilogue, and each of the three episodes shows um, a, a supposedly respectable middle-aged person behaving antisocially, doing something rather terrible, but not on a, an epic scale, just a sort of moder mod moderate antisocial scale. And then the epilogue of the film reveals that these three people are in fact all conservative right-wing commentators who are gathered around uh, a table in a TV studio discussing social morality. It established Bong Joon-ho as something of a commentator on class divisions in Korea. Um, I think it's fair to say that the issue that most drives him, the, the issue that motivates him most strongly in all his work, and it carries right through to Parasite, is class. He thinks that the inequalities in Korean society, which he has observed from both ends, I mean, he was, you know, famously during his student years, before he went to film school, he was locked up for a month by the government before taking part in a demonstration which had been deemed illegal. That's all he did, but he was locked up for a month and they eventually let him out uh, on condition that he went to do his military service right away. He shared the cell with various petty criminals, as he described them. And these were people who had done, you know, they, they was not, these were not murderers, they were not, uh, you know, heavyweight crims. They were, they were uh, you know, minor offenders. I mean, petty, petty criminals, really. However, they were people who he'd never met the like of before. 
he hadn't really hung out with such people because they were mostly very working class and he was basically from a middle class background. Uh, and he found it highly educational and he's admitted frankly in, in many times over the years that the kind of people he met in those cells during that month uh, were proto became prototypes for characters in his later films. While some directors might take shared prison time as lived research for a Lochian kitchen sink drama, Bong Joon-ho took that experience and funneled it into his love of genre filmmaking. Amongst the grim machinations of society, revolution and class exploitation, there's a hilarious bite, a little bit of slapstick along the way, and lashings of Hitchcockian twists and suspense. Parasite finds a family of grifters worming their way into an upper-class family's perfect world. The Kims are living a marginal life when their son fakes his way into becoming the English tutor for the ultra-wealthy Park family. Soon all four of the family members have roles in their hyper-stylish modern home, having used every dirty trick in the book. But the house hides secrets that are way outside the Kim's scheme. Oh, it's so fun. Yeah, it, it's really delightful in many ways. This is Empire Magazine's Helen O'Hara, who's a huge fan of the film. And she was on hand to tell us why it's so great, but also why you shouldn't be put off by the title. Many little grace notes that just elevate it beyond that. I, I think a lot of people were put off by the title. The only people I know who haven't seen it or aren't excited about seeing it are the people who assume it's a horror film. And because of that title, it sounds a horror film from the title. Um, but... It's, it's not. It's definitely not a horror film. I don't know quite how to categorise it. I think I've been calling it a thriller when forced to, but it's not really any of those. It doesn't sit easily in any traditional genre definition. Um, and that's, that's a good thing. And I think that's generally true of Bong Joon-ho's films. I think they generally defy easy categorization because I think he's just more interesting than that as a director. Well, and, and he is so interested in genre. Mm. And... Ex giving audiences something that they think they have been able to pigeonhole yeah. and totally swerving that as totally well. Totally swerving it. I mean, you know, you look back to The Host, you look at Snowpiercer, you know, on one hand, those deliver a monster movie and an action movie, movie on a train. But on the other hand, they completely don't. They're no mm -hmm. nothing like what you would expect from those definitions. And this one is very much similar. It, it, it's... Okay, it's kind of a thriller. It's kind of, you could call it a psychological drama. You could call it a, a weird sort of heist movie. And it's none of those, and yet delivers, I think, the hit that you want from really all of those. Mm. And it, it's balancing um, kind of ideas and imagery that you mm. might expect from a certain genre and mm -hmm. then twisting it as well. Um, I'm reminded in Memories of Murder where a character's favour to dropkick people, <laughs> uh, which is funny, for three quarters of a film, suddenly has a very intense and emotional and quite grueling payoff mm, yeah. uh, due to an injury. Yeah. And it's that same thing in Parasite as well, the ability to set up whether it is a line of dialogue, whether it is a, an, a physical object as well, yeah. and being able to present it in one way and you feel that it is going towards something or it means something and twisting it into something Completely else. Completely into something else, yeah. I mean, well, you know, look at Snowpiercer, you know, you cast Captain America and you think you know exactly who this guy is and and you really don't. You really, really don't. And I think that's it, that's one thing that he's just... He's maybe better at than almost anyone. Like, I genuinely can't think of anyone who's quite as good 
are twisting your expectations in this way and subverting your expectations in this way and, and using them against you. Mm. He's, he's just so, he's just really good, isn't he? God. <laughs> um, well, yeah, look, speaking of expectations, I mean, after a film has a big festival bow, like for a lot of films, that might even be its biggest moment mm. uh, or others might, you kind of, chatter might rumble on and then it you know, disappears in the hopes of awards quietly down the line. But amazingly, for nine months, the conversation around this film has only got louder. Uh, ahead of you watching it, what was it like to to follow that hype, to bring that mm. into the viewing and then have to consider whether it matches it it's it's been a, it's been a really interesting one to watch i i sort of was aware of the hype but i hadn't gone out of my way to read reviews i'd sort of read the tweets let's be honest <laughs> about the reviews and sort of thought oh I, I i must make a note i will want to see that and i you know i'm sort of in the can for this film anyway not just as a film journalist because it's my job but also because i love his other films so much um but then to to actually see it um, it, it did surpass my expectations because I was expecting something more, maybe more somber, just from the hype, just from the fact of being in Cannes. Mm. I instantly think it's going to take itself a little bit more seriously than this film at times does. Um, and that's, again, that's me being unfair to Cannes films. I apologise. But it, it can sometimes be a festival that re rewards the appearance of seriousness over actual weight of substance, I think. And, and this one, I think, has a really substantial weight to the storytelling and a really substantial weight to the themes, but is also a blast. It's a blast to watch. Um, when I actually saw it, what it actually did was ruin me for other films for a good week and a half. I mean, I saw some exceptionally good other Oscar contendery sort of films in the week after I saw this, just the way the, the viewing schedule worked out. And all of them suffered by comparison, <laughs> which is unfair. I've had to go back and watch some of them again and go, no, it is really good. No, I was just comparing it unfairly to, to Parasite. Um, but it's head and shoulders above most of its contemporaries for me. I think it's I think it's a stunning piece of filmmaking. I really do. And I've gone back and watched it again just to make sure as well. But and and how, really is, how is it on that second watch? Because... Uh, a recent film that I really liked was Ryan Johnson's Knives Out, yeah. which is a totally different film the second yes, time that you watch it. It really and is. The joy is taking that moment to relish in the screenplay mm -hmm. at that point mm -hmm. that you have been able to figure out kind of how it is actually how you have been manipulated the whole yep. time. And I can't imagine what Bong Joon Ho's office looks like, full <laughs> of like pieces of string and post-it notes as he's connecting everything together. And I, I, but it yeah. works when you revisit it. I almost hope he does have pieces of string and post-it notes. Like that would make me feel better about some of these filmmakers. Someone like Ryan Johnson, someone like McFeely and Marcus who wrote the, the last two Avengers movies. I want a ridiculous office with covered in post-it notes because otherwise we have to contend with the possibility that they're just that clever. You know, and, and it would almost be more comforting if they have to map it out physically. Um, but yeah, you're right. It, it's an opportunity to, on the second viewing to admire the engineering of the film and to just sort of cease being surprised by everything that's happening and just admire how things are being set up, admire how the foundations are being laid way before you're aware of it as a viewer. And also just to, to take a moment as well to admire, I think, things like the cinematography, which I, I'm not a very intellectual film reviewer in many ways. I don't take notes during a film, generally speaking. I sort of react quite instinctively. Um, so I, I don't necessarily sit down afterwards and, and examine how I felt about the mise-en-scene and things like that. But I just have an impression. Did I like the cinematography? Yes or no? And why? Um, but when I went back and watched it the second time, it was much more interesting to kind of look at how they were using 
color and light and and everything else. And and the cinematographer is um, Hung Kyung Pyo, and I think did an extraordinary job as well. It's not an obvious, you know, noiry film that makes everything super stylized and super kind of color coded in in a way that some films I think might with this subject. Yeah. Um, but there are colours there that keep recurring and keep sort of cropping up and you sort of start unpacking when you watch it for a second time. And there are moments that more than anything else reminded me of Studio Ghibli, really, weirdly. Um, there are moments that are pure Miyazaki. There, there's a bit where some characters are are running through the rain and, and it just absolutely looks like a Miyazaki film to me. It's really extraordinary. It's interesting that Helen mentions Studio Ghibli, because the Japanese animators behind Princess Mononoke, Spirited Away and My Neighbor Totoro were one of the things that brought together director Bong and one of his great friends and collaborators, Tilda Swinton. There were a number of things that we'd always uh, riffed about. One was our great love of of uh, Miyazaki Hayao and um, and Spirited Away, and we talked about those twin sisters in Spirited Away, and there's something very beautiful about the way those characters. What, what, what was the name of that oh twin? God, I can't in remember those twins. This is when we sat down with Tilda and Bong. So and they immediately started reminiscing about how they met and worked together. Tilda mentioned Spirited Away's connection to the Mirando siblings. Those are the characters she played in Bong's super pig adventure, Okja. Yubaba. Yeah, Yubaba. Yubaba. <laughs> it's, it's funny, I'm not sure that we talk about cinema, but we sort of swim in it a lot. You know, we'll, we'll <laughs> reference it or we'll, we'll... I don't know, it's like a... Isn't it... it we always love those kind of chat and yeah. all kind of listing we love. It's, fi- it's very top adolescent. Ten is top 10, top 5. And it's totally, don't you think it's Do you remember teenage? when when, <laughs> when <laughs> me and Duho, the producer of Snowpiercer, so when we visit her place and we in, in front of some good... In front of the fireplace. Quick shout out to Sharon Choi, Bong Joon-ho's expert translator, who's also been wrapped up in the parasite phenomenon, generating a fandom of her own online. We are talking about the, the, the who, who can be the great actor for the Mr. Wilford role. Oh, wow. Yeah, in the movie, the, yeah. the, the man who invented the whole engine and mm. trains. Finally, the, mm. is a, our great, great Ed Harris did it, but... Yeah. The yeah. first time we kept, yeah, yeah it's a 100 and, uh, mo- of the Most of the people we were thinking about have died like 30 or 40 years ago. Yeah. Still, it's, it's a great game. Yeah, so many, yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Joseph yeah. Cotton and oh, Orson Welles. Orson maybe. Wells. Yeah. 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 So many. And also Eric, Eric Born Strandheim. Yes. Also, yes. maybe. Yeah. Despite their friendship and shared inspirations, Tilda didn't know anything about Parasite until she sat down at the premiere. Mm, well, I, I knew about the film for, for uh, you know, most of the time it was gestating for director Bong. And um, I first saw it. I didn't see any cuts of it or anything previously to the premiere in Cannes. And it was a really, really, really profound experience to see your friend's work just land in a hole. It just went thump 
It was a masterpiece from the very beginning, and I'm so proud of him. I'm so proud of all of them. Song Kang Ho, and it, it just feels so fluent. And, and yeah, I mean, I, I, I believe all of his films are masterpieces, but there's something, I don't know whether it has something to do with returning to Korea after two, um, you know, bilingual um, adventures, I don't know, but it, it, this particular story, this particular atmosphere, just landed in the, in, in such a be- beautiful way. 갔는데 이제 복잡 스케줄 상황이 복잡했는데도 이렇게 근데 이제 끝나고 그롤 크레딧 올라갈 때 이렇게 손을 딱 <웃음> 저랑 이제 송강호의 어깨 손을 딱 얹고 이렇게 마사지는 아니지만 뭐 이렇게. So I was very grateful that Tilda made time out of her busy schedule to come back to Cannes and join us at the premiere. I remember she sat right behind us, and when the credits were rolling, she squeezed um, my shoulders and song too. It was kind of like a massage, telling us how great the film was, and I remember feeling so proud at that moment. Yeah, that was my role. I'm a massage therapist. <laughs> Very proud to be so. Both Tilda and director Bong's casual and comfort viewings overlap and are a great guide to how their tastes align. Yeah. I, I want to say, and this is this is a shameless way of keeping mm. the attention on director Bong, which is where I think it should be at all times. Um, I think the, the, the films that immediately spring to my mind have... have uh, things in common with director Bong, which is that they are, for example, uh, the work of Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger is like, you know, if mm-hmm. it, it's my, that's total comfort food for me and and a, a battery it kind of re-inspires my, my, my heart and brain. Um, and also we've already mentioned Miyazaki Hayo. I always say that if ever I'm in a coma, I just want somebody to to play me the music from my neighbor Totoro and I'll, and I'll either come around or happily float away. I don't really care. Um, and, but what I, the, the, the work, uh, or, or even Alfred Hitchcock, what the work of those three filmmakers, let's just be very mundane and <laughs> keep, keep to three masters, um, what the, the work of those three masters has in common with director Bong is this whole universe of emotion, this whole universe of intellect, this whole universe of suspense, of action. There is absolute sort of confidence in the audience to be that bright. And that's what he does. And that's why he's so good for cinema right now. Because in my opinion, there are very few people who are able to the same degree to justify the big screen in the way that director Bong does. And I think that Michael Powell and Emmy Pressburger, Alfred Hitchcock, Miyazaki Hayao also do, did. Um, but that sense of ticking all the boxes, you know, going around all the chakras, that's what he does. And uh, that's a real comfort film for me, a film that can do that. <laughs> I forgot everything I wanted to say just because of how sheerly am- sh- how amazing what everything she said was. Just yeah, immediately, yeah, just yeah, for um, Imamura Shohei, yeah, Shohei Imamura, the vengeance is mine mm-hmm. and intention of murder, mm-hmm. always so inspirational, and also Kiyoshi Kurosawa, the mm-hmm. modern Japanese master of horror. Mm-hmm. I'm quite close to him. He He's amazing filmmaker, very unique, and and also quite recently, I big jump to the Carol Reed. Mm. 
You recommend it was you recommend me the fallen idol. And you went to Belfast for that reason to drink in that pub. I got old man out. Yeah, old man out is Belfast. Fallen Idol is another one. Incredible. Yeah. I, I, I'm very, Those very two movies out of the loop great. and do yeah. no social media whatsoever. But yeah. somebody sent me a photograph. My friend Catherine George, great costume yeah. designer, Okja and, uh, and Snowpiercer, wrote to me and said, Director Bong is in Belfast. She's from Belfast. <laughs> Director Bong is in Belfast. What's he doing in Belfast? Drinking in a pub. I went, surely that's the pub from Odd Man Out. I got in touch with him and he trips. said, I'm here because you yeah. told me to watch Carol Reed's Odd Man Out. And I, I really enjoyed the Belfast because I really pub. enjoyed the Odd Man Out, yeah. the James Mason, James Mason, all that ju- the Odyssey in the nighttime mm. and all mm. that great pub that yeah. still exists in the movie. And also Fallen Idol was yeah, another, another Fallen masterpiece. Idol it was you recommended that movie ah. and I, I bought a Blu-ray of Fallen Idol. Mm. It was great. Ralph Richardson. Yeah. That man is great. That movie was one of my father's most favorite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So mm. actually, yeah. My father was in the film industry just two years. He actually he's a designer, but he was involved in the making the title sequence of Housemaid of Kim Ki Young. No, I didn't it, know. It that. was my father's work, the Hanyo, the housemaid. Wow. Very the, 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 Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Shohei Kiyoshi and Carol Reed. And I love John Boorman. Mm. His movie is very mm. uneven, but Deliverance mm. and The General. Mm. Uh, the Deliverance, it, it was my very traumatic experience. Yeah. Yeah. I watched it when I was in elementary school. But it's, it's very, in the TV, but it's very strange. There is a moment, the, 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 the lack of Bert Reynolds, this part is dis- almost destroyed and something uh. horrible. Is, is it muscle or something? It's, it's very strange. That it, it was not censored How in Korean TV station. How old were you when you saw that then? 10 or 11 years old. Wow. 
But normally, the, at that time, Korean TV was very conservative. They always censored so many things. Of course, that amazing sequence, the, the Mr. BT, Ned BT uh, experienced some very severe situation. It was cut out. I very first time watched that part when I bought the original DVD of that movie quite many, many years later. But anyway, when I was... Yeah, watching that movie, and yeah, I was a kid and very traumatized in a good way. There is cinematic trauma. For, you're making an argument for censorship. Yeah, it's censorship a, it's, creates filmmakers. It's really nightmare. Ah. Yeah, very and the ending도 너무 충격적이었고 하여튼 어렸을 때 이제 딜리버런스는 항상 뭔가 이렇게 머릿속에서 다시 소환되는 마더를 찍을 때또 딜리버런스를 되게 다시 보고 싶었던 것 같아요. 왜 뭐가 연결된 건지 모르겠는데. So when I was little the ending was so shocking and that's why with Deliverance I constantly recall that film within my head and I remember when I was working on Mother for some reason I really wanted to watch that film again although I'm not sure what the connections maybe. 그렇고 딜리버런스도 그 죄가 해소되지가 않잖아요. 그게 뭐 리뎀션이 되는 것도 아니고 퍼니시먼트를 받는 것도 아니고 그 끈적하게 죄를 끌어안은 채로 끝나니까 그게 비슷한 겁니다. Because maybe with mother and deliverance, both for both characters, their crimes are never resolved. They're never absolved for their for what they've done. It's not as if they get redemption or punishment. So they both the films end with them both just embracing the crimes in a very ambiguous and sticky way. And also, it just occurred to me that the mother, she puts her her needles in her leg. Yeah. I wonder if that's a. Yeah, so you feel a strange sense of pain from watching that. And there, there,对于那些被杀害的人，对于那些被杀害的人，对于那些被杀害的人，对于那些被杀害的人，对于那些被杀害的人，对于那些被杀害的人，对于那些被杀害的人，对于那些被杀害的人，对于那些被杀害的人
um, often don't want to report it because they feel ashamed, um, they feel stupid, they feel like it's their fault. And as a society, we don't really do much to help that impression because we do judge victims of cons quite harshly. Um, we do think they're stupid. Um, we do think they're gullible. I actually thought it was really interesting in Parasite that the mother in the family, um, in the wealthy family, is actually portrayed as this kind of very trusting, gullible, naive person that's just spot on on how the stereotype of the type of person who's vulnerable to the con, even though I actually don't think that's accurate. But the other the other element of it is that um, oftentimes people don't even realize that they've been conned because if a con artist is good, then you'll just think that you got unlucky, that you made a bad investment, that you hired the wrong person um, into your household. You don't actually think, oh my God, I've been conned. Audiences will notice that Yun Gyo's mother of the Park family, the ones being conned, is referred to as simple a number of times. But a simple person is not the only type of person who can be conned. The cultural stereotype of the victim of the con is just plain wrong. Um, we think of victims of con artists as either you know, dumb or simple um, or gullible or greedy. But I do think that um, what Parasite gets completely right. Um, first, yes, the mother is described as simple, but then you have her incredibly wealthy, you know, successful businessman husband who presumably um, is very savvy in negotiation and in business and in reading people. We're never quite told what he does, but it seems like he'd be someone who'd be a good people reader. Um, and he's conned as well. And the only person who's actually not taken in quite as much is the little son, mm. which I found actually also quite accurate because children often just see past whatever stories con artists are telling and they trust their senses. They don't actually listen to the distracting things that con artists do, which is part of the con. Con artists are expert storytellers. They manipulate your attention. Um, it's why actually magicians often don't like performing in front of audiences of children because children will spot tricks more often than adults because their attention is just all over the place. You can't manipulate it as easily. And so they'll say, hey, you know, I see where that card went. They can spot it um, much more accurately. And so I think that that's actually very smart that they have the little boy suspecting that something is wrong based on smell. The Kims themselves may not be the traditional con artists that we see in film, with heists normally reserved for the wealthy and glamorous. How similar are the Kims to the real-world con artists? I think that that's one specific type of con artist, but um, I describe kind of three specific traits that form the dark triad, narcissism, psychopathy, and Machiavellianism, that I think a lot of con artists exhibit some of those traits. Psychopathy is actually the, the most rare, but narcissism and Machiavellianism are, are very prominent. Um, but you can have people who have all of those traits and one will become a con artist because of breaks in life or certain opportunities or certain environments or certain things that happened and the other won't. So I think it has to be both of these things. I think in this particular story, we don't actually see any backstory of the family. Um, we don't know why they're in those circumstances because it does seem like maybe they once upon a time had seen better days. It does seem they're like they're intelligent. However, you have the son 
who has taken the entrance exams to college multiple times and hasn't been able to actually pass. And there's a very interesting moment where he falsifies his college transcripts when he's applying for a job with this family, where he says, I don't see this um, as a con, you know, I don't see this as a ruse, I see this as just kind of claiming the future. And that's what con artists actually tell themselves. So a lot of the con artists that I studied, including um, some of the most prominent in history, like Ferdinand Waldo Damara, had this insane sense of entitlement. So Damara didn't even graduate from high school, which I think is probably similar um, to, to the son in the family. And he ended up stealing degrees, stealing credentials from people over multiple decades, from multiple people, you know, he'd steal PhDs, he'd pretend to be a doctor, um, MDs, JDs, I mean, he just, if it was there, he would impersonate it. And he always said, I'm not doing anything wrong. I deserve this. I'm smarter than the people who do have those degrees. I'm just writing a wrong. And that's actually at the heart of narcissism. That's, narcissism isn't just thinking you're the center of the universe. It's entitlement. It's thinking that you deserve things more than other people. So you're not technically doing anything wrong. You're not forging documents. You're just creating the documents that should rightly exist because it's the world that's stupid, not you. And I think that is just so spot on and also gets at why con artists are so good at convincing other people. Because the son in the family actually has never been able to pass the university um, entrance exam, I think we should question just how smart versus savvy he is, you know, how good he actually is at these different topics. And when we see his first lesson um, with his new student, we actually see the same thing. He doesn't teach her English. He holds her wrist and gives her a very psychological assessment of how she's approaching these questions. That is the skill that con artists have. Everything is flipped a little bit. And so you have this sense of competence, the sense of, oh, this person is very smart. But if you dig a little deeper, they're just very smart at fooling you and they're incredibly sure of themselves. Maria says that these moments of intimacy, like the moment where one of the characters holds another's hand, can be a key part of a quote-unquote play. Um, I think that a lot of the things that we're seeing are part of the plan for people who you know, haven't read my book and don't really know the steps of the con. Um, there's really no need to label them. Um, all that you need to know is that one of the earliest stages of the con is getting people emotionally involved in the story that you're telling. And that's exactly what he's doing um, in that moment when he holds her wrist. So, so you have this moment of not just emotional intimacy, um, but wrapping everyone into the story. Now we're all in this together. Now you're emotionally involved. What con artists know incredibly well is that when people are emotional, they don't spot as many logical inconsistencies. They don't reason as clearly. They start thinking in a very different way. They start dismissing things that should be red flags as not red flags. Once they're invested themselves, just objectivity goes out the window. It's one of the reasons why sometimes when you hear the story of someone being conned, it's easy to be judgmental and to say, I can't believe they fell for this. How did they not see this? How did they not see that? What you fail to realize is that 
you're seeing it from a third party perspective. This wasn't actually happening to you. It's happening to them. And they are not no longer objective. They're subjective because they're in the story. And so they don't evaluate the evidence in the same way. They don't actually see what's going on in the same way. And if it had happened to you, you would no longer have the disinterested perspective that's needed in order to evaluate whether something is a red flag, whether a situation is not working out, whether there's something that should be raising eyebrows. And I think what this family and Parasite is incredibly good at doing is engaging that emotional reasoning right away. If you think about how every single member of the family is inserted um, into this situation, it's all based on kind of intense emotion. So we start when the son holds the wrist and actually creates this moment that gets him through the door. And that in a way is the hardest because then he's actually already one of the characters and he can shape the narrative from the inside, which is incredibly helpful. And so then you can see how all of them just ratchet up the emotion right away. So when his sister who you know, is known to the family as Jessica appears. First, he he actually does something that con artists often do when getting her hired. He creates this feeling of urgency and scarcity. She's very in demand. Um, and if you don't grab her, someone else will. So that feeling actually creates emotion in and of itself because you you feel like, oh, I need to act quickly. And so you don't have time to think things through. You don't have time to do background checks. You don't have time to do any of that um, because you don't want to miss this great opportunity. Con artists absolutely love that. And then when she enters, you know, right away, she just goes for the jugular. She, she says, you know, has something traumatic happened to him? And so all of a sudden, once again, I think we shouldn't necessarily say, oh my God, this mother is so stupid. Because any mother, when something horrible happens to her child, when you think, you know, the child is having hallucinations and has seen ghosts or anything like that, you know, of course, you're going to be emotional about that. And you have someone who is just completely pinpointing that and you say, oh, my God, I'm going to hire you and pay you whatever you want. And yes, of course, I want therapy. Time and time again, they're able to get that emotional factor ratcheted up more and more so that every single time this family is not being stupid. They're making very smart decisions for their family, or so they think. It's interesting. We imagine con artists to have had it easier in the past, before modern technology. But in her book, Marie quotes Frank Abagnale of Catch Me If You Can fame, who said, it would be even easier to do what I did then, today, precisely because of these technologies. For everything that technology does to protect us, con artists have multiple ways that they can use it to exploit us. And we trust technology more than we should. We trust what we read online. We trust social media more than we should. And con artists are able to exploit that. He likes uh, culture clashes. He likes class clashes. He likes the sense that characters are uh, rooted in a certain background. I just think it's perfect that that hashtag and the popularity and the takeover of social media that you you could take back to that tweet from the people that were stuck in the queue that weren't priority enough. We weren't allowed to get in there first and ultimately that led to the bong revolution. 
we were the parasites all along. <laughs> I don't want to give ourselves too much credit, but like, just a good hashtag goes a long way. I'll say that about Bonghai. <laughs> Thanks to everyone who helped make this podcast possible. My guests, Tony Rains, Helen O'Hara, Maria Konnikova, Iana Murray, and all the Bonghai. Sharon Choi, Tilda Swinton, and of course, Bong Joon-ho. The show was edited by Mark Towers and produced by Ryan Hewitt. It was hosted, written, and produced by Jake Cunningham and me. So, after all of that, at this point, I should probably say that if you haven't been lucky enough to see it already, you should see Parasite. You should see Parasite. It's in UK cinemas from February 7th and is one of the best, if not the best thing, you will watch this year. I think that the number one red flag um, in a con is, if it seems too good to be true, it is. Here's the main problem with it, and that's one of the things that I've been kind of stressing over and over. When it's happening to you, nothing seems too good. You just think, oh, I deserve this. I'm so lucky. Of course, I'm able to be in this great situation. Of course, I have this great investment. Of course, you know, I was able to find the love of my life because I deserve it and it's time. And so what I would challenge people to do is be skeptical and ask questions in the moment where things are going right, not in the moment when things are going wrong. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.